Through the Learning Together podcast series, we oftentimes document and share how our Trinity alumni have grown embracing opportunities and challenges. Today, you'll hear a conversation between two friends who both majored in English, Dr. Carol Fulbury, class of 81, and Naomi Shiab Nye, class of 74. They'll discuss Dr. Fulbury's forthcoming book, Wishbone, The Enduring Joy and Increasing Meaning of Odyssey. We'll hear two passages from the book describing travels to India and China. They connected by phone for this conversation. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, and this is the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. Each month, this podcast features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. It's all part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. Hello, Carol. I'm so happy to be with you. It's always a special time when old friends get together, and we have shared so much along this path of our lives that being here with you today, talking about your forthcoming book, feels most exciting. And because you and I both went to Trinity at different times, but we both appreciated our educations there, uh, with all our hearts. And I'm just so happy to have known you all these years, Carol, since the 70s. Who can even believe that? Congratulations on your forthcoming book, Wishbone. I know you're excited, right? Right. Thank you so much, Naomi, for the steadfast friendship and loyalty and, and the mission we serve in, in getting out an inspiring message to the world, especially in this time and, and day. First moment we met, and we both worked in education, and we met at a school where we were both working, I remember feeling in awe of you and your attitude, your openness, your enthusiasm, your energy. I remember our first meeting so vividly, which, as we all know, is not always the case, even with longtime friends. Sometimes you can't remember when you first met. But I remember when our paths crossed and having that that beautiful, exhilarating feeling like, oh, I really would like to be friends with this person for a long time. So I am very happy that we have stayed friends and that our paths have both gone many directions, many places, but that they keep crossing. And I wish that you could just help us dive into your own incredible travel experiences, which will form the body of your book forthcoming and read us a little segment and then we'll talk about the book. We are going to fly into Wishbone. I like to read from the book and so I'll do two excerpts this time. First one is starting in chapter five with the sorry shop and an American woman. But I have to tell you in chapter four, my first husband and I were doing a 10 day camel trip, bobbling and wobbling eight hours a day on camels. That's the preface to chapter five, where we end up in a sari shop. This could have been a mirage. Our camel drivers literally dropped us at sunset in a town market after 10 days bobbling together and 360 kilometers in the Tar Desert in northern Rajasthan, India. Everything in the desert was still, 
yellow, or flat. We're apparently now in Beaconer that stretches three kilometers like a railroad track. Like getting off a ship, our legs were disjointed as we wobbled, confused and besieged by gawking children who made fun of our looks. We asked for hotel and bystanders pointed down the street and left or right. We asked a young man in a sari shop who motioned for someone to get another person. A distinguished looking man approached us. What do you want? He asked in precise British English. We wanted the center of town. What do you mean by center of town? He asked with a creased brow. He was highly educated. He said we were two kilometers from any hotel. So he invited us to have tea in his shop before planning to leave in a horse cart. Then he invited us to stay at his home. We hesitated until he said he had 20 or 30 rooms. His eldest son, a 13-year-old, said namaste to me. I was unused to such sincere respect. We went to his home, fending off, you're a donkey, remarks from street children. I repeated, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> Dugar Shama has a lovely wife, Sarala, who held a two-year-old son. He married when he was 22. She was 16. He is now a doctor at age 38. She is 32. She greeted us warmly and prepared tea again. The British had already shaped the customs. Banks, my husband, the time, Dugar and I sat in their bedroom on a large comforter comparing Indian customs and politics in, to American ones. This large Brahmin family considered foreigners above them like gods, even though Brahmins were of the highest Hindu caste. That's why he wanted to treat us with the greatest hospitality. As part of his generosity, he asked me to put on his wife's wedding dress and be adorned by the women of the house. I agreed, if only it were okay with his wife. She shook her head from side to side, which meant yes, and spoke in beautiful English. It is too small now. This was an awkward gesture at best, but my husband, dressed in Dugar's wedding attire to complete the family photo, were there possible fantasies lurking in the back of Dugar's mind? Who knows? The women brought out the finest gold jewels and draped me head to toe. They delicately traced my eyelid in black and placed a red tikla on my forehead. I totally embraced their traditions, exactly what I wanted. Sarala explained her Brahmin culture when we were alone. She squatted on her ankles over the large camp stove on the floor of a room no larger than a water closet on a train. Women were respected, though bound in duty to serve men continually in marriage. Marriages are arranged for daughters aged 14 to 16. The woman is donated to the husband in the wedding ceremony and presents a dowry with herself. She must wear symbols of her married state, red powder in the middle of hair, red dot in the center of forehead, ankle bracelets that jingle to let the husband know she approaches, a veil covering head and mouth, especially when her husband is near, black coal lines under the eyes and in the crease, red lipstick, the universal pierced nose, and many bangle bracelets. The gracious wife spends three to six hours in the kitchen preparing lunch and dinner with tea in between. 
Four days a month, she is considered untouchable, unhygienic, and must not associate with cooking or with men. She gets another woman to cook and is forced to hide herself away. Because mothers have no education beyond high school, they are not considered fit to be teachers for their children. The children must come to the father in the evenings to counsel and instruct. The mother never leaves the home. She said she had always wanted to be educated in the United States. I longed to give her the freedoms I had and wanted to set her free to come with me. It was a melancholy parting as I felt I was abandoning her. Maybe I should have done more. I too was trying to understand my own potential motherhood and not abandon it. I had choices and I thought I must choose between my creative drive to be an international artist correspondent who took up causes or settle for family life. I never knew there was such beauty in having a family as my own childhood had been extremely dysfunctional. I didn't think I could have it all, but I wanted it all. Some thoughts now. After 10 days on a camel, I stepped off without a plan in an unknown desert town. Maybe I shouldn't have left that camel. Next thing I knew, I'd become a Brahmin goddess. This experience in Bikaner still has a profound effect on me as it touched me in so many levels. I can't imagine being in a position today of coming into a barren desert town having no knowledge of where the hotel was, if there was one at all. I didn't speak Urdu, but wasn't concerned. Someone always seemed to come forward who spoke elegant British English. All I equipped myself with was an open mind and a flexible spirit of adventure. The beaconer effect on me is the brewing concern for women worldwide to be free to study, marry, and have a family, or if they choose, develop careers, pursue their interests, and live without fear or domination. I never realized these things weren't possible for most women in Asia or even in the United States. Living with the generous hospitality of a Brahmin family touched me personally and brought sorrow. Indian women married at age 14 and 16 are property of the husband, the husband chosen by the girl's parents. Then that child is forever bound to be a servant to the needs, never developing her own. There's no way out of the trap, even if it's a gilded cage. Sarala Duggar's wife was one of the loveliest women I'd ever met. She was gracious, loving, generous, beautiful, spoke excellent English, cooked and cared for so many children. As she squatted over a small gas stove while grilling chapatis in a closet, she let her dreams drift up to me. She wanted to travel to the US, speak English, and even better, to study healthcare to improve women's conditions in India. What an incredible heart and soul hidden away, unfulfilled, even though her home had many rooms and her family was large. I was stepping into her world of happy, tragic moments as she helped me slip into her wedding dress that she could no longer fit. Her daughter stared at the gold jewelry as they gingerly brought it out of hiding. Quantity meant prosperity. Every inch of my head, hands, and feet were covered and reflected in light. I asked if they could pierce my nose, but they used a clamp-on nose ring. The center red Tikla was a Velcro dot brought focus to the face and established status. I was adorned and possessed, accompanied by honor and respect. It was a two-edged sword as I thought about handing my life over to a man whom I didn't choose, but had to trust would treat me right. I had no power in this equation to keep the balance in life. 
I saw many men easily took advantage of young girls in the name of marriage. Sorala's daughters gently outlined my eyes in black and then stepped back to admire the American they had turned into a goddess in their own image. They giggled, pleased at what they saw. The mother smiled quietly. We were all gathered for a family portrait as Banks had been dressed in the husband's turban and robe. His family was honoring and including us as their own according to their hospitality and Brahmin beliefs as foreigners were above all gods and goddesses. If I haven't, hadn't stepped into her wedding dress, I wouldn't have been transformed. I wouldn't have experienced the love of their beliefs that keeps my heart soft for Hindus. I still align myself, though, with Mother Teresa, whom I later met in Calcutta, who fought the caste system that allows people and babies of the lowest caste to die in the streets. Naomi Shihab Nye was quoted in the South Texas newsletter in 1995 about this Asian wishbone trip as it was recounted. She lived vicariously with me as a friend and poet. Our trip's notoriety grew over 10 years as we continually were asked to give speeches, slideshows, dress up in Burmese sarongs at the Canopus Clubs, San Antonio Museum of Art, McNay Art Museum, and other venues in San Antonio. I think back at how the consensus in San Antonio was before we left. We were fools. When we returned, unbeknownst to us, we were catapulted into celebrity status. We seemed to go from street mongers to God and goddess. The Sharma family planted a contemplative seed in me to think about my own family. I was charmed by the generosity they felt for strangers, their warm hearts, and the sharing of the Brahmin culture as we lived with them, eating their food and wearing their clothes. I glimpsed this as the way of love that ends wars. Before I became a part of them, I didn't understand them except in abstract ways. They made the love of humanity real. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today, and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Carol Fulbury and Naomi Shihab Nye. Oh, Carol, what a magnificent passage that is. And you have really carried us away into another scene, another place. I'm so moved by that surreal uh, dawning of the wedding dress and your your bravery and uh, your care for the woman's own desires and uh, frustrations in her own life, how quickly you were able to enter into an intimate relationship with her own experience. And, you know, that to me is really the gift of a traveler, Carol. That's why your travels were always so astonishing to your friends who were lucky enough to hear about them, because you didn't just pass things by and take a quick glimpse, you entered into the worlds that you visited and you became part of them. Uh, and I think your, 
your attitude, what you've described as an open mind and a flexible spirit, uh, surely that was evident to everyone you met, that you were curious about them, you loved them, uh, you wanted to love them, you wanted to know them, and they accepted you. That's such a beautiful passage. Tell us about the title of your book, Wishbone. Wishbone is a metaphor, and I can describe it best by starting with where I live. In the hill country between San Antonio and Austin, among the oldest live oaks in our area. And I feed and water 33 species of songbirds and many birds of prey. You know, the painted bunning and the cooper hawk are some of my favorite birds I see daily. And they all have wishbones, by the way. <laughs> Yesterday, as the sun was setting, I took a walk and was alarmed when I heard this loud honking. It wasn't the sound of street traffic, I looked up in the sky and found geese flying right over my head. They were freeform, yet had a pattern, like and they intrinsically understood how to fly together. Most people call it a V pattern, but I saw it as one large wishbone with the lead goose at the fork. Then I imagined all these little individual wishbones flying as one forked bone, one body in formation. I know this sounds funny, but it illustrates the point that as humans, we are all one bone, a forked bone, and as one body, we can move forward. It's still the same bone, but when that bone splits, there's always a long bone and a short bone. Then we become winners and losers instead of caring for the greater good of mankind. So to me, it's random how we're born into systems we didn't choose, like economic, social, political, environmental. It's random that some of us have the long end, privilege status, and some get the short end, poverty and injustice. We all really want the same things, though, in our humanity. We want our families to have fairness and compassion and have good lives. We all want the same thing as humans. We can rewire the systems we're placed in at birth by seeing that each individual is like everyone else. We can make a wish from that short or long end. More than that, we can rewire the systemic systems that are placing us in a win or lose situation. We can fly as one body in formation. Carol, that's very beautiful. I wish that, there's the word wish, that all of us could have your, your warm um, memory of experience. You know, you were quite an exceptional traveler in those very young days as well because you took more notes than most people do. You drew wherever you went, you painted. I know because I was lucky enough to receive some of these missiles on beautiful blue air letter sheets through the mail and have a vicarious feeling of traveling along with you. But saving all these notes, all these years and your artwork and tickets and relics of your astonishing journey, that has contributed to your book, Wishbone. And I think it's remarkable that you had such a presence of mind as a young traveler with probably light baggage most of the time to be able to 
think ahead. You know, I'll want to remember this. I'm going to take the care uh, to write down these notes. I'm going to describe this scene in a letter. And, and didn't you do the amazing thing of like keep carbon copies of your letters to your friends? I did. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the pre-internet days. You kept carbon copy. <laughs> Unbelievable. Tell us about that. Well, um, I did that because on this journey, I just, I didn't know why I was doing this journey, basically, except I wanted to see the world and live in other cultures. But I felt like there was some purpose that I would understand later. Um, I was 26. and you know, curious about the world and, and had a naivety that actually saved me in a lot of situations. It's all partly because of, a, of an attitude of really we are one, one being and we all want the same for each other. So let's see how we can get that for each other. Carol, would you read us one other uh, brief passage from Wishbone, your forthcoming book? Chapter nine, Uyghur arbors, and Cossack yurts. So we're waiting for the 2.30 p.m. train for three-day sleeper ride into the Gobi Desert that would arrive in Turpan from Xi'an, where we were. Then I fast-tracked everyone to being in Turpan, which is a Uyghur settlement. It's July 4th. Independence Day in the U.S. seems like a foreign concept when finally strolling the streets of Turpan amidst donkey carts, bicycles, and heavy vegetable trucks. Down a dusty alleyway and into an immense inner courtyard was a market filled with Uyghurs, the ethnic borderland Chinese who were partially Eastern European, partially Mongolian, partially Turkish. Many of them had hazel or blue eyes, they were selling juicy striped watermelons, grapes, pita bread, and meat dumplings, and rice, fresh green peppers, and an odd assortment of clothing. The dumplings caught my attention, so we stopped in a covered pavilion and satiated growling stomachs. I can't remember my stomach ever growling back home. Curry seasoning widened our nostrils and developed our appetites by its intoxicating smell. Mildly flavored tea and dumplings filled us for one yuan each, two yuan to a dollar at this time. We then bargained for a famous watermelon whose rind is so sweet that the Uyghurs eat it. The Urumqi Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region spans vast deserts, lakes, and mountains in the northwestern part of China. The Uyghurs are so open and friendly toward travelers. In Turpan, a majority of families let their young children run out from their clay open-air homes to say bye-bye or wave. In cafes, men would invite us to join them in drinking cognac any time of day. They seemed devoted Muslims, but still enjoyed drinking and talking to me, even though men normally don't talk to women in public in their own culture. Walking back through the oasis irrigated wheat and melon field, we came upon a small clay village. Another family waved us inside to sit under a mature grape arbor to eat green grapes and sip tea. I spent the rest of the day sketching portraits of the members of the family as they lined up to be drawn. The women prepared noodles for us as the men sat with us. No one had a language in common, but we felt comfortable with this. Banks and I started singing Beatles songs like, 
yesterday or give peace a chance to liven the group. Then they began singing folk songs. We all ate together as one family and felt close. I gave them extra drawings of the grandmother, three sons, and a daughter-in-law and grandsons as I captured their dignified manner, colorful dress, and high cheekbone structure. Cultures could unite through the arts as our common language. So I'm in the desert, yet lack nothing. I'm at home with people I've never seen before, a language I've never heard, and yet am so embraced by the Uyghurs as one caring family. Our three-day train ride then out of the Gobi Desert across China through Inner Mongolia to Beijing. As we took this train, I began to see miles of barren, rocky wasteland as Qin Shan Mountains faded from us in a distant horizon. So we were leaving Turpan. We were leaving a family of love. And I always get depressed as I feel the land flattening out, a docile dragon tail. Within this desolate desert plain, the oasis cities sprang up. In my mind, I sucked again on that watermelon rind. I'm leaving a fertile culture. They show such dignity, grace, hospitality, and love for differences as they live their lives in peace. Our train chugs past the Great Wall that ends in Joaquin at the western edge of the Gobi Desert. The wall is dilapidated, the end of a defeated dragon's tail. Some thoughts now. In the summer of 83, I used oral tradition that spanned back to Roman times by asking people along the way for the most current information. When my husband and I arrived in Hong Kong to enter China, there wasn't even a current lonely planet guide. China was in flux. Only by word of mouth did we learn how to navigate what turned out to be a three month of wandering indiscriminately throughout a vast secretive Eastern culture with our Western minds. First, we traveled unofficially during a window of opportunity for Westerners when China was just opening to democracy. We were blessed not to be classified as an English teacher and spouse and were guided by people in Hong Kong who knew the system and they told us which way to start with only a permit available for a three-week visa. Then we'd travel by boat, first up the Pearl and Li Rivers through Canton to Guangzhou. Then the more rural and further away from Beijing we got, the more likely we could extend our visas another month, then another month. Who would have known? Humans still aren't valued as having basic rights by this military regime. Now the Chinese government is taking away any human freedoms gained because they can. Humans belong to the government for use as they see fit. Hong Kong and its riots over trying to be one country in China with two states. How did we ever accept that this would work knowing that the Chinese feudal history hasn't changed? In wandering through China, we learned how to judge information because we depended on it. If we encountered some honest and authentic people, we trusted their information. What a reliance on face-to-face -face interactions, no cell phones, no internet. In 1983, we had total freedom of meeting Chinese in their homes as they'd motion us in and sleeping on the streets of Beijing, if only the government hotel had closed early. 
of celebrating Muslim Ramadan by wandering from yurt to yurt in the Cossack Mountains, or of traveling by donkey cart, fourth class train, or number three bus. We didn't need to communicate in a common language, but shared through the arts, music, drawing, cuisine, love, and respect for each other's particular identity. They'd sing folk songs, we'd sing Beatles songs. The woman would cook for us while I drew them and gave them drawings and we'd share our traditional clothes. It would take a whole afternoon under a grapevine arbor as light filtered through the large leaves defining the succulent grapes. So I thought again about China and sharing cultures through faith and the arts. That's why I was compelled to record this vivid culture in words and drawing daily on site. What if, instead of just doing pilgrimages to holy places, a natural movement evolved in which people purposefully lived, if only briefly, in foreign cultures to share their customs through faith, culinary arts, visual arts, and performance arts as the main common language. We are one body, one blood. There's an urgency in our wireless connected world in 2020 to be aware of the Uyghur and Cossack plight. The Chinese government forces parents into re-education schools, internment camps, and places children in boarding schools, prisons. Where do these families ultimately end up while we watch? The Uyghur culture was thriving in 1983, but where is it now? Will these cultures I've grown to feel compassion for ultimately be discovered in the future only as broken bones and terracotta remnants? Oh, Carol, was that the ending of that section? Yes. That is so haunting because the broken bones takes us back to the image of the wishbone and your philosophy about humanity and sharing culture, sharing food, sharing art, sharing all the things that make us human beings, no matter what our religious or ethnic background may be, it's embodied in that section. People are going to have to read your book, Wishbone, to travel along with you and feel that philosophy, which feels hauntingly refreshing in the year 2020. Despite all our new means of connection, Uh, We need your style of connection that you are reminding us of in your book. Could you you just say as a closure, um, maybe a sentence or two about your own philosophy of what we need uh, in our world as travelers, even if we stay in our own neighborhoods, as most of us have been in 2020. And thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you. And what I would say now is, Sit down with someone you don't like. Have a meal and tell a story. Share music, art, any kind of communication that is showing relatedness because it's relatedness that transforms us. Carol Fulbright reading from her forthcoming book, Wishbone. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. 
Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu. Thank you.